Hello and welcome to Kyle's Internal Monologue. Uh, this podcast is a solo podcast uh, featuring myself, uh, just talking about any kind of fiction I like, whether it's comics, video games, TV shows, what have you. Um, I'm a big fan of the TV show Babylon 5, and I figured that if I was going to start out my podcast uh, like this, then I might as well start with something that I love. So... Uh, I'm going to go episode by episode uh, and just look at the the overall uh, production of Babylon 5, its story, its themes, its characters, and how they evolve over the five seasons and and movies as well. Uh, I will not be covering Crusade, and I will not be covering The Legend of the Rangers, nor Call to Arms, which leads in the Crusade. I will be covering everything else, though, so all five seasons, uh, The Gathering, which of course this episode is about third space and uh, in the beginning uh so without further ado i'll go ahead and get into it uh so the gathering is in a bit of an oddball episode when it comes to babylon 5 itself uh jms or j michael straczynski however you want to refer to him had a long ongoing plan uh he had been working on the idea of babylon 5 since the mid 80s uh, and, he, and he's had several interviews where he's talked about it. it just came to him one day in a shower and how he took these two story ideas and he merged them together. Um, but the thing about The Gathering is it's a pilot and it doesn't work for what he wants. Uh, and it doesn't work for – I mean if you look at TV shows nowadays, if you, unless you're a network show, more often than not you don't really have a pilot. Uh, you know, Netflix shows don't have a pilot, they go straight to series. Uh, Game of Thrones had a pilot, but it was pretty much destined to go straight to series. Uh, and they even reshot its pilot the moment it got, uh, moved into a series. Uh, and that's how most serialized stories work, is that because you have an ongoing story, a pilot method just doesn't work for it. Um, so he had to distill a lot of his ideas into one an hour and a half narrative, and that just didn't work. And so he treated it as like the prologue to a book. And he's talked about that Babylon 5 is a novel for television, that it is this uh, five-act structure, each season representing an act of an ever-evolving novel you see, you can watch it through like a book, and there's nothing wrong with that. And that leads, I mean, we would not have the current television landscape if it was not for Babylon 5. That is without question. There would be no Battlestar Galacticas, there would be no Game of Thrones, there would be no Breaking Bads without JMS and Babylon 5. So, The Gathering, as a result, just ends up such an oddball because. It's trying to tell a single solo story, and but also set up multiple arcs. And some of these arcs won't even get fulfilled because the actors aren't there anymore. Because there was a year gap in production between the shooting of the pilot, seeing if it was successful, and then getting picked up the series. So when we enter season one, some of these characters we spent time with in this are gone. And I will be getting into that here in a bit, uh, especially how that changed in regards to Laurel uh, turning into Ivanova and then Talia and all of that jazz in in regards to a future reveal about those characters. Um, 
I will real quick mention that I will try and keep spoilers to minimum. I think I will, at the end of every episode, um, stick on a little segment where I talk. I will give out a spoiler warning and then I will discuss particular spoiler points. But for the most part, I'll try and keep spoilers to the episode we are on. So if you're watching along with me, you will uh, not be spoiled about future events because this series is so serialized. Everything pretty much ever mentioned is going to be picked up at some point. It may be a small way it's picked up and not the way you expect, but it will be picked up on. It will become a future thread, more than likely. There are very few dropped threads that aren't in some way acknowledged in the plot um, throughout these five seasons. So the gathering not only doesn't have the the, the 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 horrible responsibility of having to introduce audiences to a brand new universe. I mean, this isn't this isn't Star Trek: The Next Generation where you had the original series and then you had the original series movies, and, and so you just said, oh, it's a roughly a hundred years in the future. Okay, go. We don't have that luxury here. This is a brand new universe. Everything has to be set up, the rules of it, how technology works, how governments work, especially considering the Babylon 5 is basically the UN in space. You, the large focus is on the politics, so there's a lot of focus on the aspects of the various races, uh, their politicking, their relationships to each other, their governments, etc. Uh, but it also has the task of introducing us to these characters, and setting up future plot threads while also being good enough to stand on its own. Uh, and as a result, a lot of dialogue feels very stilted in this. And that is an occasional problem Babylon 5 will have, is that sometimes it gets a bit too big for its britches, and the dialogue, especially the way certain actors deliver them, is not great, though there are times when the dialogue is the most magnificent dialogue I've ever witnessed. And certain, I, I can think of certain scenes that bring me to tears every time I watch them, just because of the, the delivery, the words, it, it's all perfection. Um, but the gathering suffers the most from that, and I think um, there are certain characters that deliver it better than others. Peter Jurassic is Londo, and he's always been amazing in the series, but he gives it his all even as far back as this episode, when no one had a handle on their character, he's still... I mean, he does not put in any different performance later in the series. This is Londo straight off the page. Londo's arguably the most realized character right now, uh, as far back as The Gathering. I think the weakest is Laurel, Laurel Takashima. Now, depending on which uh, version of the pilot of The Gathering you watch, you'll get two different performances out of the actress. Both of them, in my opinion, are okay at best. Uh, I much prefer Ivanova. I much prefer Claudia Christensen's performance. Um, Laurel feels very stilted, very stoic, uh, while still delivering those Isberic humor and, and sassy lines that even Ivanova has. Uh, that That's not... The, the actress does, does not have the right timing, the right delivery, and that could have been a directing problem. That could not just be on the actress's uh, hands. It, it could be multiple 
aspects. But everybody I've ever talked to uh, has always said that Laurel is easily the weakest in this. And we won't be seeing her again. So, uh, you know, I, I'm glad we went with Ivanova, so I'm not too heartbroken. But it would have been interesting, considering where her story was heading, uh, to see how that would have fulfilled in the initial vision of JMS. Um, the overall, the presentation is a bit rough. Uh, the CGI does not look polished. And the CGI in B5 will never look great. It's very 90s, and it was made to be cheap. That was the reason they went for all CG. But there are times when the the choreography of like certain space battles I can think of is just so well done that you ignore the the the, the grainy effects and the, and the the not well rendered models because it's just so well done and well executed that you're fine with it. Here, it's very rough, not great. Um, and you see that even in other aspects. Uh, the lighting is a bit off. Uh, much The lighting is much darker than it will be in the main series. Um, it, it just seems a bit off. Um, the, the music, at least in the original version, is awful, quite frankly. The redo by Christopher Franke... Uh, later on, when TNT did a re-edit uh, of, the, uh, of the gathering, it's much better uh, because it then fits in with the rest of the, the series and the rest of the music. and uh, It's less pulpy 90s sci-fi and more uh, dramatic storytelling. Uh, it fits much better with the rest of the series. Now, there are some very interesting themes running through uh the gathering uh you you have of course uh the cycles of violence we get the setup of the nard and the centauri and how they relate to each other and how the nard were subjugated and enslaved by the centauri uh and how it's an ongoing uh battle between them at this point that uh, you know the the centauri have laxed in power they've They've, uh, they, they've become a shell of their former selves, and the Narns have gained their freedom, but now it's they want to take revenge on their old captors. Uh, it's the classic cycle of violence thing of that we're in a constant state of flux, and that when one side triumphs over the other, the other will attempt to get revenge, and it will always continue. It will never, ever end. And that will be a, a theme we continue to touch on, over and over and over and over again throughout the rest of B5. Um, and one of my favorite episodes is all about that theme. Uh, and those who have watched the series can probably guess. When when I say the long twilight struggle, uh, anybody who's watched this series, their hearts probably sink because they know exactly what scene I'm referring to and they know exactly the kind of pain you feel for multiple sides in that moment. So uh, we get uh, we get some interesting hints about the rest of the world. We get the idea of the sidecore and the telepaths that there are commercial telepaths. Um, 
uh, with Lita, and, and we, we of course find out that the Narn do not have telepaths, that it's a genetic a genetic fly, I suppose, according to Jakar, of, uh, that he uh, that, that uh, they don't have telepaths, which is why he asks to mate with Lita in hopes to re to get that gene into the Narns. Of course, those who have watched the series know there's a reason the Narn telepaths don't exist. Uh, and I will get to that in the spoiler section. We, of course, uh, the, the, the main plot thread revolves around the attempted assassination of Kosh, the Vorlon ambassador to Babylon 5. And the Vorlons are treated as this like mysterious, foreboding, intimidating force. No one's quite sure what they look like. There's tons of legends about them. Uh, whenever the cautious suit opens, there's a shaft of light. Uh, everybody kind of freaks out, those who see him, that being Lita and Dr. Benjamin Kyle. Um, they, they, they don't seem the same after they've seen him. And of course, there's a reason for that. But it's also because the Vorlons are this trope. There's this trope in science fiction of... Uh, ancient empires that are obsessed with their own importance and that's what the Vorlons are they are they want to continue they they pretty much set up a mystery about themselves to freak people out about themselves so that they have an edge over everyone so that everyone will look at them as superior and better than them so that well they will be obedient to them that is the core of Vorlon belief, and I don't think that's really spoiling anything to say that Vorlons require you to be afraid of them because they want you to follow them. They are the most powerful race in the galaxy, at least as far as we know up to this point. In, in the way we build and build and build the mystery of the Vorlons is really fascinating. Uh, and this is not just talking future stuff, this is just talking the gathering, the way people talk about the Vorlons and, the, you know, the legend, uh, you know, of uh, someone may have turned to st stone the first time they saw uh, Vorlon and how they're freaking out that that may potentially happen to Benjamin Kyle. And of course, it's all fake because legends are legends. There's sometimes some truth in legends. But not all the time. And there is a truth that you will never be the same when you look upon a Vorlon, but you won't turn the stone. Um, we find out about the Earth Membari War. And the Earth Membari War, I can't really talk about most details without going into massive spoilers, but we get this sense that there was this great war and they've. Most sides have not really gotten away from it. Uh, we know that Delin, at least, has gotten past it, at least to some extent, because she freely gives Sinclair classified information from her government. Now, there's a reason for that, but I will get to that in the spoiler section. Um, the the assassin is a Minbari, and he's and he he says the famous line that will be reused in the season five title sequence you have a hole in your mind um clearly there is and we know he we find out he's from the warrior cast and we know that delin is from the religious cast um so we understand that there's there's a divided society there uh not everybody there is quite over the membari war and of course 
Sinclair himself isn't over the Membari War. He's got PTSD. Uh, he's he's scared to talk about what happened. He was at the Battle of the Line, and then he blacked out, and he's missing 24 hours. But not just that. The, the Battle of the Line, as you know, he talks about. You know, the sky was full of stars, and each star an exploding ship. We understand from his dialogue that this was the Carolyn even says this the the biggest battle in the entire war, and and he talks about it later in the episode of we lost the Membari surrendered at the very eve of their victory. Now, as we'll see in in the beginning, the the Battle of the Line was the last defense of Earth. Sinclair was right, they had lost. This was a suicide mission. This was, we're pulling out all the stops in hopes that perhaps, maybe, we will eke out a victory. Maybe, just maybe, some of us will survive. But they knew it was false. They knew they stood no chance. The Membari were steamrolling them, and they had been steamrolling them for three years. Um, there was no victory to be had, but it was the last desperate attempt of a dying race to survive. Uh, so of course Sinclair does not is not over that. It, it may have nearly been ten years, but he can't he can't get past that. You know he's still li reliving that, and of course the missing twenty four hours does not help. Uh, and, and we see that he just breaks down and he nearly chokes up. And Sinclair seems like a very stoic person, but he does have a sense of humor. But he the he chokes up and he, he he struggles to find words when he's talking about the battle line. We know this affects him massively, and will continue to affect him massively throughout the rest of the series. Until of course he finds peace. Um, the more we find about the the Minbari, uh, they're they're very interesting race in the in the fact that that they're a divided society. Uh, we have the warrior religious and due to reasons i can get into behind the scenes we have not been introduced to the worker cast yet but the worker cast it kind of fits in with the lore the tenelli worker cast is kind of forgotten uh for reasons uh that i can't really get into uh until spoilers that uh that the that there's this very regimented society and we see that even religious casts are not exactly good people. They're 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 willing to get their hands dirty. Delenn uses the the gravity rings on Jakar, and now I I can say for certain the gravity rings will never come up again. Uh, and I'm kind of glad because they're kind of odd in this universe. But uh, they're one of Jameis's ideas that just doesn't come back. They were actually supposed to come back in season two in an episode that Peter David, a very famous comic writer, wrote. But they were it was cut for time. Uh... But uh, the gravity rings do make sense as far as a religious caste weapon, because if you think about it, the religious caste is very aristocratic. They think of themselves as better than everyone else, the more enlightened. So they have weapons, but they're weapons that you would you don't expect. They're, they're, they're literally the kind of things you can wear around, uh, so they can kill you by just being around you. It's kind of a creepy thought and very, very religious caste mindset of yes, we're we're good, we're natured, we uh, we worship Valen, but uh, 
were also kind of mean at the same time, which will come into play into the series as the time goes on, that the religious cast isn't everything they say they are, and neither is the warrior cast. Um, to quote Jakar from a future episode that is coming up in, like, it's episode 5 or 6, I believe, uh, Mind War, not everyone here is exactly as he appears. And not, not, and not Sinclair, not, not Malari, not Delin, not even me. Um, and I, I think that, that really embodies the Membari, uh, the Membari culture as we know it now, is that they seem pretty straightforward, but they're not. Um, and we'll get more into that. Now, Chikar, this was JMS's intention. The way he saw it was that in most science fiction TV shows, you have the heroes, you have the villains, and they never really change. And for the most part, that is true. Um, so he decided to take the character caricature of a villain from a sci-fi TV show and make them a lovable, interesting character and have them change over time. So, Jakar really seems like the villain. If you have no context for the rest of the series, you would assume Jakar is a villain. Uh, he's, he's outspoken, he's kind of really conniving and manipulative, uh, he's very aggressive about things, and we even end this episode on Sinclair not so subtly threatening him. Uh, so we would assume he's the villain, but I can say without a doubt that he is perhaps one of the kindest, most gentlest characters in this series, uh, who gets one of the best arcs, too. Um, he's right now more of a warrior than he is anything else, and eventually he'll become more of a priest. And that evolution of that character is one of the most fascinating things that ever I've ever watched. Um, and now we'll go to his opposite real quick of Londo. Londo is my favorite character of the entire series. Uh, his arc is the most tragic, most interesting, and never fails to bring me to tears. And Londo is a clown right now. He is a buffoon. We get introduced to him in the casino. He's laughing. He's got that big poofy hair, which is the trademark of the Centauri. And uh, the, everything he wears is kind of a mockery of Napoleonic France. Um, we learn from him about the Centauri and the way they operate. And we understand why he is the way he is. Perhaps in my favorite scene in this episode of the, 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 the Gathering is the scene where him and Garibaldi are talking. And he mentions about uh, remoras and how they latch themselves with the sharks. And he says, the Centauri will want great sharks. And, uh, and he has this big ongoing speech about, uh, what are we, a thousand monuments to past glories. And uh, we, my God, man, we've become a tourist attraction. Open nine to five Earth time. He's, he's obsessed with the past. He's got this jingoistic, nationalistic pride about what the Centauri used to be, with the stories and legends he's heard. And you'll notice that this recurring theme of what legends are and what legends used to be is a recurring theme throughout B5 of this is a man who's lost. He's a drunk, 
All he does is he gambles and sleeps around and drinks. He's He's got nothing to live for, and he sees his job as a joke. And he wishes the world would be kinder to him. And sadly, he may just get that wish. And he won't look kindly on anyone else. Garibaldi uh, is one of the greats. Everybody loves Garibaldi. I don't know anybody who doesn't love Garibaldi. Um... We we learn more about his checkered past, and that he he he's had uh, he he's willing to break the law in order to preserve the law. He is a Harvey Bullock type character, to pull a comic analogy. Um, he's very the the detective kind of character, not a war detective, but not really. Uh, but he shares some traits with some famous hard boiled uh, detectives. Uh, one of the more interesting things we learn about is that he's not politic. He, does, he This is something said by Sinclair to him, is he's not politic, he doesn't care. The The thing is, is that Garibaldi is not concerned with what anyone else thinks. He's concerned with withholding the law because his job is a, secu is a security officer. And he works for his best friend, so that's all he cares about. And he's going to do his job to the best of his goddamn ability, basically no matter what anybody or the world thinks. And uh, that will prove very interesting as the story unfolds and how people abuse that that aspect of him. Um, so I think I will go ahead and move into the spoiler section and then uh, we will call it there. So uh, spoiler warning uh, to anybody who is listening. Uh, I will be continuing on after the spoiler section to give a brief uh, synopsis of my plan for the rest of the series, and then I'll be out, but uh, we're moving into spoilers, so be warned if you're watching the series for the first time. So, of course, the four, the reason the Fourth Hunts don't want to be... don't want Kosh's suit to be opened and don't want to be discovered for what they are is because they are, in fact... Everybody's holy symbols. Basically, they are to, to humans. They are angels, demons, and you know, it's they have been manipulating everyone's history for thousands of years, all to get them to fight this one ongoing war. That that, will, that once again, the cycles of violence. They will that will never ever end, and it's an ideological war, and all they want is your obedience. It is peace at the barrel of a gun. And that is not how peace works, but they refuse to accept that. As far as they're concerned, they're right, you're wrong, that's it. But of course, as Sheridan says, uh, back right, right back at them, quoting Kosh, the understanding is a three-edged sword. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Now... We get the establishment that Babylon 1, 2, and 3 were sabotaged and destroyed, and then Babylon 4 was just mysteriously disappeared 24 hours after it went. Of course, we know that is Sinclair and co. stealing it, uh, to go forwards in time and to go backwards in time. The original plan for that was a bit different. That changed when Michael O'Hara had to depart the show, uh, and thus Sinclair was not able to become a, is, remain a main cast member. Uh, I think what we ended up with was far more interesting than what would have happened. Um, though I would, I do find what 
what would have happened be intriguing enough that I would be fascinated fascinated to see perhaps a remake that goes down the original path, the original plan. Um, but I do think Sinclair becoming Valen, uh, and of course the, that's why Dylan gives the uh, the information freely to Sinclair is because well she knows that he's the most venerated leader and religious figure of Membari culture. Um, so it all fits, even though that was not the original plan. Because the thing about JMS is that he had all five seasons planned out, yes, but he was not married to it. As any writer would tell you, because I'm a writer myself, that stories are living, breathing entities. They change, they evolve, they grow. So you may have a plan. You may have a set idea of where you're going, but your characters, new ideas that come to you at random will change that and shift it into a new direction. So you have to be willing to go with the flow of the story. Always have an indie in mind, but be willing to change it, which is what JMS did. For the most, for the most part, he kept exactly what he, what he was going to do. He just changed a little bit, especially to accommodate disappearing actors which I think uh, is a good time to bring up the Laurel Takashima problem. So Laurel Takashima was intended to be Control, uh, which is the Psychor agent on B5 uh, as revealed in Season 2. Now, uh, we, f we get hints of this when the Membari assassin, when, uh, when he goes to, to murder... Adele Varner, when he uh, swipes the card to get into the Adele Varner's room, uh, we can briefly see on the monitor that it says Laurel Takashima uh, confirmation. So ba ba basically, she has she gave the assassin uh, her credentials to get into the room. Uh, of course, we know why this is. Uh, the Psychor is attempting to. Uh, make things go a certain way because the shadows are manipulating Psychor. Now Psychor will eventually break away from the shadows and do their own jazz, but as of right now, they are working with the shadows. Because uh, we haven't even got to the point where the, uh, the Psychor uh, starts doing what they want to do. Uh, and the, pr the thing with Laurel is that she kind of gets split into two characters, <laughs> and then that character gets split into more characters. So, Laurel becomes Ivanova, uh, and then the control section becomes Talia. And of course, Talia only sticks around for two seasons, is revealed to be control, and then is quote-unquote killed. Uh, we don't exactly know what happens to her, just a line from Bester hints that she was dissected. And then of course, Talia's original plan story gets moved over to Lita. And now Lita's in this, but she won't be back until season two. Uh, and then is reoccurring in season three, and then a, and then a main character in seasons four and five. So uh, it, it, it's fun seeing the setup of Lita, actually, because of her connection to the Vorlons. Uh, that she's she's seen a Vorlon, she's psychologically meld with this more Vorlon. This is this was a unique experience for her, and she wants that again. Of course she wants that again. It's nothing. It's like nothing she's ever experienced before. So of course she's gonna go out and try attempt to do it again, uh, which is exactly what she does. And as we find out in season two, she's personally working with the Vorlons, uh, and eventually becomes the host 
of conscious replacement. So, uh, and she's been like super, super uber modified by the Vorlots to become the most powerful telepath alive. Uh, so this all fits. But JMS, he implemented what is called trapdoors, which was the idea that you can take a storyline, make it important to a character, but if an actor, or an actress, or whatever had to leave, you can transplant that storyline onto someone else. Uh, with a few changes naturally to fit that character more than the other character. Uh, so uh, Takashima becomes Ivanova and Talia. Talia becomes Lita again after Lita had become uh, Talia. So it was this revolving door. Uh, but he, the story that was intended to be told was told. So that, that is good on that. Um, Benjamin Kyle, speaking of... Uh, the connection of Vorlons, he will be brought up a couple more times, actually. He's not forgotten. Uh, he's replayed, replaced with a much better actor, in my opinion. And uh, Stephen Franklin is a great character. But uh, uh, Benjamin Kyle is not forgotten. We will actually be bringing him up on several occasions, including the fact that he's the only human to have seen a Vorlon up to this point. Of course, if you've watched the series or you're listening to the spoilers because you want to know, Many, many humans will see Vorlons by the end of Season 2. Now, it's actually really fun to see in the CNC during the action sequence, we see uh, Ed Wasser, who is actually the uh, actor who will play Mr. Morden, coming up very soon uh, in Season 1. Uh, and and all the way to Season 5, actually. Uh, of course, he's not playing Mr. Morden here, but... Uh, and it, it just doesn't fit, but I do love the headcanon of he decided to board the Icarus and go out. But of course, the timelines don't match, but it's just kind of funny seeing him there. Because I always expect the camera to focus on him and just go, what do you want? So we get Sinclair's ever-revolving door of uh, of um, transport captain girlfriends. Um, so we get Carolyn here, and then... Uh, we, we will have another one uh, in Mind War, Parliament of Dreams, and uh, Chrysalis, uh, Catherine Sakai. Um, now, this was all to set up the twist at the end of Season 3. And see, in the end of Season 3, of course, uh, the big reveal is that Sheridan's wife is still alive and has been changed by the shadows. Now, the original plan was to have Sinclair marry the freighter captain uh, girlfriend, either Carolyn or Catherine Sakai, because they couldn't get the actress back for Carolyn. They do reference her, actually, but uh, uh, in the series, but uh, Catherine Sakai, uh, if we were going to take the series as a whole, and if Michael Hara didn't have to depart, she was going to disappear. And then, uh, like, she was going to disappear out in deep space, and that was going to be the entire story. And then there was going to be a budding romance between Delin and Sinclair. And then, of course, the end of season three, the reveal is that Sakai is not dead, but in actual fact, been changed by the shadows, which is pretty much what we got with Sheridan and Anna. But changed obviously because we didn't have the full setup. When Sheridan is introduced, we get it. We we find out that his uh, wife disappeared out of deep space 
So Jameis kind of cuts to the point just in case he loses an actress in which we do recast Anna and Anna only has two appearances. So uh, it's actually a good thing that he just cut to the chase on that story. Um, but I really understand what he was trying to do. Uh, and I, I respect it. And it's a really smart idea. Uh, you can see him thinking ahead a lot um, on, on a lot of this stuff. Um, we, we, of course, have the mystery of why the, uh, the, the Mimbari surrendered the Battle of the Line. Of course, we know that he's Valen. Um, and that, of course, is why we, we get the setup of the Great Council. Uh, uh, Car hints about that perhaps Dylan is a member of the Great Council. And why is she here? Why is a member of the Great Council here? You know, um, they're secretive. There's, uh, and, of course, we know why she's here. She's there to supervise Sinclair, um, and that explains what her sort of tenacity of protecting him, uh, and, and perhaps one of the best scenes uh, beyond Londo's was uh, just after the big fight with the Minbari assassin, where she approaches him uh, after the fight, and her first reaction is uh you, you know you, you don't really sense you sense that they're friends but you don't understand that they're like super close but it, it, but her first reaction was are you all right can i get you anything which of course seems a bit strange but if you take it in the context that she sees him as the most revered religious figure in her in her religion of course she's going to ask if he's okay and if she can get him anything because as far as she's concerned he's a god so <laughs> You know, um, we get the setup of the corruption on Mars and how, uh, you know, Mars is, is kind of had a bunch of riots and uh, people aren't happy there, which, of course, will be picked up later. Uh, we get the sense that Earth isn't squeaky clean, which is kind of the point of B5 is that Jameis loved Star Trek, but he, he hated the fact that everything was just kind of squeaky clean. Everything was kind of perfect. And he's like, humans aren't that way. Humans will forever have their own problems. And we'll probably never get away from those problems. We can try, but they'll always be with us, and we have to combat that. Uh, so we're getting the sense that not everything is perfect. That there are problems back home on Earth that we are not... We're, we may be out in neutral space, yes, but we're not separated from what's going on back home on Earth and on Mars. And that, of course, because of the Clark saga, that, you know, uh, we're getting massive sense up of that stuff. And I mean, next episode is going to be the election. Uh, and of course, Ivanova's line of, uh, you know, I, I, I don't like someone with uh, a good leader should have a strong chin. He doesn't have a very strong chin and his vice president has several. <laughs> um, I'll be bringing that up next time. Now, I think... There are two scenes that I want to bring up uh, before I exit here, uh, and they're both Dylan and Sinclair scenes. Um, one of the major themes, and I, I couldn't bring it up without spoiling, which is why it's in the spoiler section, is um, the scene where they're in his, they're, they're in the Zen Garden, the Japanese Stone Garden, and Dylan says that. In Bimbari culture, there's these the mini stories about the one person that can change history. 
and she uses the Zen Garden as a metaphor for that of you, you know, the lines are straight, uh, follow the same pattern, but you throw in a rock and it's utter chaos, they change, they evolve, uh, which of course is a major theme of Babylon 5, is that stand up for what you believe, uh, no matter what, even if you stand alone. Uh, we see that time and time and time again, and of course, Sinclair, she's talking to Sinclair, who is Valen, who changes Membari culture forever, but re regardless of that, you know, he, he's going, he, in the original plan, it's now replaced with Sheridan, leads the charge against the Vorlons in the shadows, because they have been perpetually over thousands and thousands of years manipulating us and keeping us in this cycle of violence to keep them obedient to them. And of course, that one person, Sinclair in the original version, now Sheridan, stands up and says, no, that we're done with you. We don't need you anymore. Uh, we can stand on our own and, you know, get the hell out of our galaxy. Um, and it, that is a massive, important part of Babylon 5, is the power of one person to change everything. And it comes up again in uh, Deconstruction of Falling Stars, where uh, you have the people in the future looking back on Sheridan's actions, and they're saying, you know, one man just can't have done this. Uh, there's no way. And uh, Delenn, of course, enters and goes, Sheridan was a good man, a kind man, who cared about the world, even when it cared nothing for him. We, and like I said, we see this over and over and over again in Babylon 5. I think the most prevalent point, I think, and the one that strikes me hardest, is in uh, Intersections in Real Time, uh, where Sheridan is being cruelly and horribly tortured by Clark's regime, and the interrogator asks, you know, can you win, basically, because Sheridan had been saying that you can fight the system, and, uh, and the interrogator was trying to manipulate him in the way of believing, no, you can't, that the truth is fluid, the truth is objective, the truth can be changed. And Sheridan throws that right back into his face and says, uh, you know, if the truth is subjective, then I can stand alone because what I believe is true is true. And, and then uh, the interrogator says, uh, uh, can you win? And Sheridan, in perhaps one of the greatest line deliveries I can ever think of, says, every time I say no. Um, and that we see that in the very first episode. Just the Zen Garden is that metaphor right there. Uh, JMS is thinking so far ahead and is so beautiful seeing everything like this being set up and being part of the thematic backbone of this series from day one. And that's the kind of writing I can get behind. And the final scene I can I want to bring up ties into that of um, uh, the final scene between Sinclair and Delenn where she asks why Babylon 5? And of course Sinclair quotes a poem from Tennyson uh, you know uh, that, that, that is the goal to strive to seek to find and not to yield. Um, when we humans latch onto things, we believe in rebuilding, we believe in preserving what we love. So when something is destroyed, we rebuild it again and again and again and again until it stays. And 
I think that that really embodies what Babylon 5 is all about is Babylon 5 can get really dark. It can get very depressing and it is perhaps one of the most morally gray TV shows you'll ever watch. Nowadays, of course, we 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 reveled in moral ambiguity, but this show is also incredibly optimistic. Um, the ending is insanely optimistic, um, and that's what I love about it is that it earns both its darkness, its gray morality, but also says that things will get better, and they should get better, and they will get better. And, uh, uh, of course, that is embodied at the end of season four with the speech given by Dylan of what is built endures. And Babylon 5, Babylon 5 endures. So that is my thoughts and opinions and thematic analysis of uh, The Gathering. It's a very good episode, has flaws, yes, uh, but it is a good pilot and a good uh, intro into the series. So I do think Midnight in the Fiery Line is a bit better for that. And of course, we get introduced to the major characters, a lot of the major characters like Ivanova and Veer. Um, and season one is a bit rough and rocky in, in places, but I do think it has some very strong episodes. It's perhaps, at times, some of the best episodes in the series. So I'll be looking forward to uh, tackling that. I'm going to shoot for a schedule about an episode a week. I may increase that at some points when I have more time. And, of course, this is not set to just Babylon 5. This is not just a Babylon 5 podcast. This is Kyle's internal monologue. This is me talking about whatever I want to talk about. So I may interject with comics occasionally, and the plan with that is if I interject with anything, I won't interrupt the main schedule. So I plan to cover all 110 episodes of Babylon 5, plus the three movies, which I just covered one. And uh, so if I ever interject with a comic or a movie or whatever I want to talk about, it will be a bonus episode that week. Um, more than likely, like I said, my schedule's a bit busy right now, So, but I'm going to try and keep about an episode a week, if not more, if possible. Um, so, uh, and, and if there's any interruptions or there's going to be a bonus episode, I will let you know. Uh, follow me on Twitter at KyleJShare and the same with Instagram. On Instagram, you can get my uh, sneak previews of my comic. I do. I, I put out short comics online on Tapastic. You can read one right now. It's a psychological thriller uh, called All the World's a Stage, and I'm going to have one coming out in a couple weeks uh, in uh, early June uh, entitled uh, The Path You Choose to Walk. The art is done by an Italian artist named Flygore. It's, uh, I, I work with him. He's a great guy, and uh, I, I have a Patreon set up where we... Uh, are trying to gain revenue off of these comics we do because we hope to make this our full-time jobs at some point. And if you go and support me on Patreon at Patreon slash Kyle Share, you can not only support my comic book work and my writing in general, but also these podcasts because I'll be able to do what I want to do for a living uh, if I get enough supporters. So thank you for your time. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. And keep on uh, watching Babylon 5 and reading comics and hope and hope you enjoy this journey through this amazing science fiction TV series that is perhaps one of the best television shows ever made with me. Thank you and goodbye.